This week marked the beginning of May, which in the capital region means college and university commencements, snow-like drifts of pollen, Mother's Day, Memorial Day weekend, and Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. 50 billion transistors crammed onto a silicon chip the size of a fingernail. We'll hear how capital region residents with ties to India are feeling as they watch a virulent COVID-19 outbreak devastate the country half a world away. I would rather be at home as bad as it is. I would actually rather be at home and watch the situation where I can do something. We'll examine the fine line between culinary appreciation and appropriation with local chefs and restaurateurs. What is your connection to that culture and how are you representing that food? And musician Michael Jerling pays tribute to his late friend and local music legend Tony Markellis. Jimmy and Jerry D. I'll testify to Tony. We had no idea at the time that would be the last time we played together, but thank God we did. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler for a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. All right, Casey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. We are going to talk about our top headlines this week in print and online. Let's start with Governor Andrew Cuomo announcing a major reopening of the state's economy coming up later this month. Can you tell us the particulars? Well, on Monday, the governor announced May 19th will bring the lifting of capacity limits on a bunch of businesses, bars and restaurants, hair salons, gyms, offices, retail stores, museums, entertainment centers, theaters, and more. Basically, what that means is that capacity limits will be lifted, although social distancing will have to be maintained at venues where vaccination of patrons or audience members cannot be assured. So basically, that means uh, you can have maximum capacity at your restaurant, for example, as long as in areas where you can't determine that somebody has been vaccinated, you can maintain six feet of space between parties. Now, there are um, changes coming for baseball games as well. The state is going to allow large outdoor sports venues, including, of course, Mets and Yankees games, to host full capacity sections of fans who are vaccinated. All that will be required is, uh, you know, the use of face masks. Non-vaccinated people or people who cannot, you know, demonstrate that they have been vaccinated will still have to maintain six feet of distance, you know, within their pods. So that's going to create a certain degree of complexity for, um, you know, large entertainment and sports venues. And it looks like the Saratoga race course will be one of those. 
it basically what it means is there will be sort of two areas at least for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And as you can imagine, this prompted all manner of unpleasant comments <laughs> below this story on Facebook. But there you go. Part of the reopening continues. In addition, the Mets and the Yankees announced that they are going to host vaccination clinics before games. And if you show up and get your shot, and it will be Johnson & Johnson, so it just takes one shot, you will get a free ticket to the game. So if you got vaccinated before and you were hoping to get a free ticket to a baseball game, tough luck, Jess, but there you go. Yeah, medically inadvised <laughs> to get a second shot after you've already been fully vaccinated. <laughs> yes, yes, don't do that. That's not, yeah. that's not wise. All right. Uh, Also in political news, uh, upstate New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is angling for more power in the House this week. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, Stefanik is um, the odds-on favorite to become the number three most powerful Republican in the House of Representatives. This is the position of conference chair currently held by Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who has become a lightning rod for criticism from uh, hardcore Trump supporters and even some, you know, more mild-mannered Trump supporters within the conference because she has been a staunch critic of the president. She voted for his impeachment and she has continued to say that the Republican Party, not just in the House, but writ large, needs to turn away to move on from what she has described as a cult of personality around Trump and specifically needs to acknowledge his role in perpetrating what she refers to correctly as the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen, and also grapple with Trump's uh, culpability in the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. She has been a scourge on those within the party who uh, continue to support Trump and continue to back the debunked notion that the presidential election was stolen. Well, we'll be following that as that develops. Bringing it back home to Albany here, uh, the chair of Albany's Community Police Review Board is accusing an Albany police detective lieutenant of making, quote, several racist and disparaging remarks during a meeting of the city's Citizens Police Academy. And that was last month. Can you tell us what what's going on there? What are we reporting on that? Yeah, the CPRB chair, Nairobi Vivas, wrote a long and very detailed letter. She is an attorney to Mayor Sheehan and to Police Chief Eric Hawkins, accusing this uh, detective lieutenant who was taking part in this session that is uh, required, I believe, by members of the Citizen Police Review Board, in which Detective Lieutenant Howard Schechter allegedly made comments that suggested that, for example, Black people are not sufficiently incensed by crimes perpetrated by Black people against Black victims, which she correctly identified as being a white supremacist myth. In addition to that, he made allegedly made comments about victims of sexual assault that forced her and another member of the review board who were attending this event to walk out to interrupt him, make it clear that they found these comments to be offensive and walk out. This matter is now under investigation. The detective in question declined to comment through a police spokesman, but it's another sign that many within the community 
are very dissatisfied with sort of the course of reform and the performance of the Albany Police Department in reaching out and trying to build better bridges with communities of color. And this, of course, comes just a little bit more than two weeks after the the storming of the encampment, the removal by police of the encampment out in front of South Station that has turned into another another wound with advocates and, and with folks in the community. More on that at timesunion.com and as well more on all the all of the things that we talk about here. Moving over to business news, IBM says it's made a major breakthrough in computer chip tech right here in our backyard. Can you tell us more? Look, Jess, I'm a person who thinks that little elves uh, are pushing around lightning bolts inside my telephone and my laptop, <laughs> but apparently it is the work of uh, that is very dependent on very, very tiny computer chips. And four years ago, IBM kind of stunned the, the semiconductor industry by revealing that it created the first five nanometer computer chip, which is very, very small, and that it was developed in the lab at Albany Nanotech on Fuller Road, which is, of course, the artist formerly known as SUNY Polytechnic Institute. And this week, uh, IBM is announcing a, a major breakthrough that is the first working two nanometer chip with 50 billion transistors crammed onto a silicon chip the size of a fingernail. It seems to be pushing right up against what's known as Moore's Law, which is the rule that says that things can only get so small and still be effective. But we're, we're pushing the outside edges here. But yet another um, creation of uh, capital region innovation and and it's great news coming on the heels of you know the announcement that global foundries is going to move its operations to their chip fab in malta it really suggests that there is some momentum growing or more momentum growing for this industry in upstate new york it's just terrific news that is really exciting. And uh, I, too, subscribe to the elf theory of technology. It's never been disproven. <laughs> All right. One last thing. Uh, a story that we file under quirky or strange news. A man came out of a manhole cover in Schenectady in the middle of the weekly green market. But I'll let you tell more about what happened there. A great story from uh, Paul Nelson, uh, who covers uh, Schenectady for us, about a very odd scene where um, folks who were attending the street market on J Street near City Hall in Schenectady, who heard a sound, turned around, and saw a man coming out of what appeared to be a manhole. A very strange sight, obviously, led to an investigation that found that this manhole led to a passageway to a closed basement space. Now, the man who apparently was in need of some social services, which were provided, said that he had only been down there once. It's unclear as to whether or not he might have been, you know, sheltering there, but definitely a, a strange sight, even in strange times. But it, it's it's good to see that, obviously, that the city responded that this man is uh, is getting help, but uh, but definitely odd. Could it be that this mysterious basement space is, is uh, Tech Elf headquarters? <laughs> Un unclear at this point. <laughs> Reporting has not confirmed. All no. right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. We'll check back in with you next week. 
Sounds good. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. India is experiencing one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks the world has seen thus far. Cases there hit a record high this week. The country reported more than 400,000 new cases and almost 4,000 deaths in a single day. Shortages of oxygen, hospital beds, and vaccinations exacerbate the situation daily. This week, the United States restricted travel to and from the country. Here in the capital region, members of the Indian diaspora say they're feeling frustrated, scared, and helpless as they watch the situation unfold half a world away. Some, like Times Union arts and entertainment reporter Shrishti Matthew, are extremely worried about their friends and loved ones living there. Both of Shrishti's parents tested positive for the virus recently and still await a chance to be vaccinated. I spoke to her this week about the situation. The situation in India right now with COVID deaths and infections is just, it's alarming for anyone to behold, but I imagine for you in particular with family back home, tell me, what are you feeling right now? Now I am slightly better because um, uh, my mother is out of quarantine and, um, but like she's still isolating because my dad um, has like a lot of comorbidities. That's good to hear that your mom is, is almost in the clear. That's, that's wonderful news. But news is still grim. I mean, like you can't help but worry for others. Absolutely. And you talk to a number of people who are living in the capital region with family and friends and, and all sorts of connections back to India. Tell me, what are they saying? What are they, they saying? are worried as much as I am. Um, in fact, there were a few people whom I was unable to speak to because they are actually in India right now taking care of family and I wasn't able to speak to them in time for the story but the ones who are here it's like the same sentiment of worry many of them have had parents who've already had COVID one of them told me about how she lost her father in December to um, COVID-19 and she says that you know now I'm concerned for my mother and my siblings don't live close enough to her so I'm always on the phone with her other people have talked about how they've had to financially help their friends and help out others. And there are a few initiatives, but what someone told me was that with the first wave, there were huge fundraisers and everyone was getting together to help out within the capital region as well as to um, sponsor foundations back home. But now it's just hitting everyone on a more personal level. So instead of like organizing something, everyone is too concerned with what's happening in their own homes and their own families. Sure, that's completely understandable. Now, tell me more about some of the folks that you talked to. You you mentioned the story uh, of an individual who is helping out a friend who's very, very concerned for his friend. I did. His name is Ashok Adikapola. He works as a um, software engineer here with the New York State, and he's based in Lodenville. And he told me about how his friend uh, recently got COVID and ended up infecting his wife. Now, his friend's wife has a lot of comorbidity. She's a diabetic and she has a lot of other issues. And he, his friend was laid off sometime in the last few months. He worked at a an agency that helped people prepare to come abroad. But now with COVID, it's very expensive to have COVID, I might have, add in India. Like, 
even if you do have the money, it's very difficult to get a hospital bed. It's very difficult to get have access to anything like an oxygen cylinder or a medication. And because things are as bad as they are, there is a lot of corruption, of course. So you will have to pay a few bribes here and there. He told me that he did. He didn't specify how much he had to send, but he told me he sent a decent amount of money to him. He isn't alone. I spoke to um, another person who is who is a member of NIHA, which is North Indian Hindu Association of Albany. And mm-hmm. he told me about how they have started a fundraiser, but they're still deciding on whom to donate the money to. So they have collected money amongst themselves and they're still figuring out how to get it to India and what would be the most trustworthy connection to send uh, money to. Organization, I'm sorry. It is concerning for everyone over here. And it's especially jarring, so to speak, because out here in the capital region, everything is like slowly returning to normal. Vaccines are, everyone's getting vaccinated. I actually got my own second shot like two days ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you, you wrote about this in the article, how you were feeling, you know, the moment you got your second vaccination, you sat down for the, you know, the 15 minute uh, period that they make you wait for and you were just scrolling through Twitter. Can you tell me more about how that? Yeah, it's just this feeling of um, survivor's guilt, I'd call it more than the anxiety because um, for me personally, there was anxiety because I would rather be at home as bad as it is. I would actually rather be at home and watch the situation where I can do something, you know, where I can sure, step in sure. and help out. But at the same time, I was on the phone with a friend who lives in Delhi and they were telling me about how difficult it was to get a vaccine appointment. And here I am where the system actually registered me twice here. I have two spots over here. I mean, that caused its own bureaucratic confusion. But I have two spots here. And there are people back home who are just like struggling to get anything. And around the same time that my mom tested positive, a very dear friend of mine tested positive as well. Their family was in an even more dire situation because in a family of four, there were three of them who tested positive. So it was them and their mom and dad. So while they were sick themselves... They had to go and organize a hospital bed for their dad, organize oxygen cylinders, organize, um, there's an in, there's a medicine called remdesivir, which is being prescribed to a lot of patients, and that's also in shortage, and organize that. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, what, what can I do beyond donating? Like, I can't even, like, a lot of people back home in India are verifying leads where um, you can post a plea on Twitter where you say that, my um, so-and-so has been admitted in this hospital and they need a cylinder of oxygen and people will like send you a lead and say you can go to this place in this city and I just call them up and they said that they do have oxygen. I can't even verify those leads because I I mean I can't make international calls and there's a whole time zones different. So wow. I mean so this is like the best I can do with my medium is talk about it and talk to people over here. And I know that everyone here feels the same as well, because like they said, that they've collected money, but they still like don't know which foundation to um, send it to, or they haven't figured out which charity to send it to. And people are concerned with their own families. So like there's, there's not much they can do in terms of mobilizing each other either. After the break... Should a chef or restaurant be cooking ethnic foods they have no cultural ties to? 
we'll hear from local culinary experts on what counts as appreciation and what is appropriation. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Who gets to make what kind of food? It's not a new question, but it is one that came up most recently in the capital region last fall after a local white food purveyor began to sell a chili-based condiment that some thought was stolen from Chinese cuisine. Times Union food writer Deanna Fox recently moderated a diverse panel of local chefs and food purveyors to discuss what constitutes culinary appropriation versus appreciation. Here's a taste of that panel, which includes the aforementioned food purveyor John Trimble, maker of hot crispy oil, as well as African-American Cultural Center Executive Director Trayvon Jackson, Kuma'ani restaurant co-owner Eric Lee, and Tara Kitchen chef owner Anissa Wahid. So when you were creating the oil, when you were putting the recipe together, did it ever come into your mind that maybe you would get this reaction? Do you think that people thought this would be more of a, a, a Chinese product than just a general hot product on a market already saturated with so many fiery products? Uh, no, I didn't really. I mean, I thought there was a possibility, but I didn't think it would be to this extent. Um, only because, like I said, on my shelf at all times, I had products from really all over the world. Um, and I also think that, you know, as, as much as I love all those pro- Asian, Asian style chili oils, I never set out to create one like that. It was not an umami based product. Um, you know, if you look at like the ingredient label, you know, we always get compared to Laogan Ma. If you look at the ingredient labels of, of hot crispy oil to Laogan Ma, there's, there's very minimal that are even close to the same ingredients on there. And it's a totally different flavor profile. So no, I was probably naive. I was young. The company kind of happened extremely fast. I was in the process of trying to close up a restaurant and, and obviously COVID and lockdown with kids. So it just happened so fast that, and, and that's on me and that's egg on my face for probably not thinking about it more and thinking about how I could approach that, you know, those accusations of me doing something that maybe could offend other people. So Trayvon, I know in our conversations, this is something that's come up too, and I want to turn it over to you to get your perspective on it about where that line is and also the different types of appropriation that can come out of food culture. So for you and the work that you've done, where do you feel like that line is? Um, As we discussed, appropriation versus appreciation really does depend on a litany of factors. I think the key point in conversation does come down to context. Um, And when we say things like presentation and context, I think it means being very particular about the intended purpose and then the actual outcome of these events. Uh, I would also tend to agree 
fried chicken is not unique to black people. A lot of cultures around the world like fried chicken. But if your goal is to get more people to buy your chicken and you do it by claiming it is Southern style or soul food, you are obviously appropriating because what you are presenting is not the food. It's an enticement for people to support you economically. And the key point of leverage here historically is that that point of support economically was the inverse historically, specifically for African-Americans. That was actually a point of slavery. Um, and one of the conversations we had was that white people and people who participate in the white supremacist structure are used to other cultures serving them their delicacies, right? That is something that is standard both in the Western world and anywhere white supremacy reigns. And these cultural elements are used as signets and jewels in the palette of these individuals in power rather than an acknowledgement of the struggles that forge these dishes. So for me, the line is, is fairly clear, um, although it depends on something that's ambiguous and that's your desire to educate yourself, right? Fortunately, the cultures that experience these things naturally have a very good inherent barometer for education on their culture. So how should a restaurateur or a food purveyor show respect for the product at hand? Yeah, no, good question. And I, I definitely defer to the other restaurateurs and professional chefs for their exact perspective, because I think it's very important to honor culinary respect between professionals in that field. Uh, speaking as someone who manages and runs a cultural center, I think pragmatically, you always have to involve people first, right? We shouldn't be finding out after a restaurant is opened, after a product is launched, after a menu item is being promoted, that it has ties to this culture and no one from that culture has had a conversation about it. I know personally, my target to talk to would be other restaurants or people of that color. Uh, we live in a diverse world and why it may not be as diverse in Albany as it is in New York City. Um, Anissa alluded to being able to find Moroccans in Albany to discuss Moroccan cuisine with. You should be able to find those like Eric and Jude and others who represent that culture and at the very least ask for their opinion. Right. And that's something that Dale brought up. You have to show the initiative beyond controlling the fire and the fallout and the difficulties and the bad press. Real interest and care is being proactive, not trying to defuse the bomb after it's already placed. And I think that would go a long way towards getting people who are qualified, like the restaurateurs on this panel, to tell you the right direction to go. Yeah. Eric, you had your hand up. Why don't you um, yeah, address so, that question? Yeah. Uh, I think it's important to know the background of the food, uh, know the ingredient, know, you know, how the foods come about so that when, you know, when customers ask, uh, you are better prepared to talk to them about it, uh, educate them about it, uh, engage them in it. And I think a lot of times that's, that's what happens when, when people just, you know, find something catchy and they do it without really understanding what it is. And you are giving people false impression of that, you know, of that food. Um, I feel like personally, I feel like the better approach is to, you know, if you're doing something and, and being creative, I mean, obviously food and ingredient travels, you know, all over the world. And you have, you know, as, as, as a, um, a chef, you always have that creative urge to do something slightly different. But when you're naming it, I would say it's it's better to name it different than the original name because you made a change to it. 
Right. One that you can explain to customers why you made the change, and second, customers could recognize, oh, okay, you know, this is what I need to look for, rather than something that's so generic, generic that people just think, okay, this is what it is. You know, that's what the, you know that the name is what the food is. We've had conversations about um, authenticity. You know. Brands like Cheesecake Factory, for instance, making things that are definitely not Mexican and definitely not Indian or Asian or you know, Chinese, Japanese in any way. Um, so how do you approach this, Denise? So what do you think? What are your thoughts? I think that going back to the point that Trevon made and Eric made, what is your connection to that culture and how are you representing that food and what are you doing to educate the people who are consuming your food? And I think for the most part, people like us who are operating smaller operations and in a local community and you know, can have these one-on-one -on -one conversations with our guests, I think we, we do try. And you know, we're trying to do that on a daily basis. I think the larger conversation is bigger brands and bigger companies who are doing this, who really are the core problem. They are actually doing the culinary appropriation. They are profiting from Indian food. Nothing that Cheesecake Factory makes re remotely resembles Indian food. Uh, you know, I don't care what they have to say about it, but that's how they present it. They're profiting from it. And that's very upsetting. So I think that's what it goes back to is what is the context and how are they able to do this? Whereas somebody like, a, you know, a real Indian chef cooking real Indian food in a restaurant is not getting the same kind of love and attention because they're actually doing something that's authentic. Uh, anecdotally, when my parents opened their, Indi their Indian restaurant about 15 years ago, they scrapped the menu from the previous owners and brought in a lot of traditional South Indian food that we are used to eating. And it, it just, people just didn't take for it. You know, people were like, right. where's the chicken tikka masala? You know, that right. kind of stuff, which is not even Indian. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. To watch or listen to the entire panel, head over to timesunion.com or the Times Union YouTube channel at youtube.com slash albanytu. The region's music scene lost an icon last week. Saratoga Springs-based musician Tony Markellis died at age 68. Close friends say he'd been battling a number of health problems. Markellis's illustrious career included many collaborations with Fish and its frontman Trey Anastasio, who once lauded Markellis as, quote, the baddest bass player I've ever heard. Another longtime musical collaborator and close friend, singer-songwriter Michael Jerling, sat down with Times Union editor Casey Seiler this week to remember Markellis. Here's a bit of their conversation. This is Tony Markellis. So, Michael, you met Tony Markellis back in the late 70s, early 80s, and as you recalled, um, it was really around your, your sort of shared connection to, to Cafe Lena, is that right? That's right, yeah, that's what drew me. Uh, I quickly found out about Cafe Lena. I wasn't uh, far enough along to perform there when I first moved here, but uh, but that was my goal, and so I 
would go up for shows and it was a magnet for musicians, you know, all around the country, really. I can't remember exactly when I met Tony, but I'm sure it was either, uh, you know, watching a show or watching him play. At the time, he was uh, performing with a lot of people, uh, Rosalie Sorrells and uh, Paul Siebel, a lot of people. He was very busy. somebody who, as you know, tended to play with a lot of people, but he also worked in a really kind of mind-boggling array of musical genres. You know, it's everything from from folk to jazz to fusion jazz to Zydeco and Afrobeat. I mean, the, the list on his website, I think, goes on for about a, a dozen different genres. Oh, yeah. How would you describe his playing style, because it was so eclectic, uh, what kind of brought it all together? Some people say, and this is very true, it was very hard to get Tony to do anything fancy or filigreed. He wanted the meat and potatoes of, of the rhythm and the pocket if he was with a drummer. His greatest love was any kind of roots music, folk music, whatever you want to call it whether it's blues or like he loved Louisiana music of all kinds. Uh, he introduced me to a lot of that stuff. I think, I think because he was so basic isn't the right word because it sounds simple, but he, he pared everything down to its most essential elements. And he was also had a great internal metronome. So he was always, he was always able to find that the heart of, uh, of whatever the music was. I mean, I, the only thing, I, things that I would say that I don't, not that he couldn't play them, but he didn't, wasn't drawn to play them so much, were um, like, you know, like a, a hard rock kind of showy kind of music. Anything that was kind of showy, he wasn't, it wasn't so much for him, you know, and there's not, there's anything wrong with that. You know, it's, there's a place for all that, but it wasn't, it wasn't his thing, you know. Now, you ended up touring together, as you described it, kind of countless countless hours in the car going from point to point. There is nothing like an extended car trip or years and years of them to test a friendship. I mean, what was, what was he like <laughs> in that regard? We were excellent car companions. We could just, we both enjoyed talking. We both, I mean, Tony was a consummate storyteller. I've heard many of them more than once, but that didn't matter. They were always good ones and joke teller. We never ran out of things to talk about. He was also very easy to get along with. You know, he didn't, uh, you know, he wasn't any kind of uh, diva or anything. And as long as we found a good place to eat and I didn't wake him up at the crack of dawn, you know, that was the only thing that I had to be careful about. But uh, we were a great, great company and that's, how we became great friends. Outside in a sleepy Delta town, here's the story of Jimmy and Jerry Lee. You you noted that he was not shy about suggesting a good place for a meal, yeah. even if it kind of took you off the uh, off oh, the most yes. direct route. I mean, he was a big guy, um, oh, especially yes. kind of later in life. He yes. he was a, a fellow of appetites. He was a fellow of great appetite, but also great taste. 
he wasn't just a guy to go get a bag of Cheetos and, you know, eat it all day. He, he wanted to find the best tamale he's ever eaten or the best gumbo that he's ever eaten. You know, he loved New Orleans food as well as music. He didn't go to like, he called them the, the white tablecloth kind of restaurants. He didn't usually go that way. He'd look for the, you know, little family places. And, and he always said that he, uh, he, he liked a place that uh, where there was grandma sweating the food, you know, where the, <laughs> where the family family's cooking and, particularly if it was an interesting ethnic or regional place he, he just loved that. So he would, in the old days, he'd have a, he had a, a lot of books that he would carry with him and he, and uh, he would sort of plan, he knew where we were going and he'd, he'd think a couple of days ahead of where he might want to check out. And uh, he also kept this little spiral notebook in his shirt pocket. He would pull it out a lot of times in a restaurant. He'd pull it out and make a few notes uh, he'd also do that in the studio, which was very disconcerting because you figured you were doing something wrong when you're writing something down. Yeah, like he, he might be uh, figuring out a fine to hit you up with later, like like James exactly. Brown. Or like that. <laughs> well, I took the road to riches. I both had something to sell. A tent revival heaven. CD row house hell. Talk about heaven. Just about a month ago, um, you and... Tony, after a, a long period of kind of, I, I guess it w- was pandemic um, inspired isolation, you yeah. you were able to do a show, really kind of bringing your your friendship. It seems like full circle back again to Cafe Lena, a streaming performance. Exactly, and of course we had no idea at the time that would be the last time we played together, but thank God we did. And Orion Cribs joined us on mandolin and uh i think we did a really good job and uh i mean tony was playing very well he seemed in good spirits and good health and uh so yeah it was it was full circle absolutely yes. between and that's the story jimmy and jerry d i'll testify tony talking about this that there's a, a kind of special poignancy to the fact that he passed away with plans right with uh, lots of reasons to look ahead to seeing more friends to playing out live he had about a half dozen yeah coming dates on his on his calendar um yeah, things were coming we we're really opening up and uh i know that uh, you know the the trade people had contacted him about his availability and so it looked like the summer might really, uh, really be uh, open. So he was trying to get health clearances, and he, the only thing he was limited, he, he couldn't fly. He had had some problems, and he wasn't supposed to fly, but he would be able to play. And uh, he was hoping that would he'd be able to get things under control so he could also tour flying. So yeah, and it was you know it's spring and it's all these positive things, and it was just a kick in the solar plexus. Michael Jerling, thanks so much for taking the time. We're sorry for the the loss of a very good friend, but we appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. Glad to talk about it. That's the story of Jimmy and Jerry Lee.
that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.